Welcome to Beneath the Surface B-Sides, where we bring you full interviews with infrastructure experts. On the most recent episode of Beneath the Surface, we focused on the state of public transit in the U.S., and we compared it with one of the most train-loving countries in the world, Japan. For this episode, I interviewed Alex Forrest. He is currently a transit planner for the Pioneer Valley Planning Commission in Springfield, Massachusetts. I've been a fan and a friend of Alex's for years. He's cultivated a community of train fanatics on Twitter, train Twitter that is, where he shares his thoughts on the state of train travel in places like the US and Japan, where he lived for several years as a child. His username is at 380KMH, which might seem a bit random, but it's the top design speed for most high-speed trains. In our conversation, we discussed his current work in Springfield, the formative years he spent in Japan, the history of train development in the US, and more. So here is my conversation with Alex Forrest, which has been lightly edited. I hope you enjoy. So the first question is always the hardest. Introduce yourself, uh, tell me your title, and why are we talking today? Well, my name is Alex Forrest. I'm a transit planner for the Pioneer Valley Planning Commission in Springfield, Massachusetts. And we are talking today about transit around the world and how to do it well. Tell me a little bit about your current work as a transit planner. We, When we were chatting about this episode a little bit, you told me that you just won funding for two lines. Is that right? Two bus routes, right. So my work in transit is limited to bus operations. Um, that's the transit provider that I work for operates out of three bus garages in Western Mass, about 35 to 40 routes. It varies a little bit by time of year. And yeah, in the past couple of years, I was able to win funding from MassDOT to operate two new services. Both are kind of longer range intercity kind of services. One of them runs on a roughly hourly frequency on the interstate. The other is just a three times a day through a state highway connecting to Worcester, which is a, it's a service that we've had a lot of interest in riders from. And I'm a little disappointed that we couldn't provide more than just these three round trips, but it was great to be able to get that running. Talk to me about the transit situation broadly in Massachusetts and also kind of how does the transit system in, in the broader kind of Northeast differ from the rest of the U.S.? Massachusetts works nicely as kind of a microcosm of the rest of the country in that you have Boston, which is our Northeast, I suppose. Um, and then you have the rest of the state, which, I mean, the rest of the state was settled very early. So it doesn't necessarily have the same you know, town patterns that you'll find in the rest of the country. But in terms of transit availability, I think it's a working analogy. It does the trick, um, which is to say MBTA is the transit provider in Boston. They run four subway lines, one of which doubles as kind of a surface streetcar route. They run a myriad of bus lines, including some nominal BRT routes. They also run ferries and commuter rail around Eastern Massachusetts. So very extensive network, one of the top performing networks for ridership in the USA. There are also, I wanna say maybe 15 or so regional transit authorities elsewhere in the state most of which have sort of one central city and a defined service area. And their job is to provide exclusively bus operations. You know, it's not written in, but that's just how it works out throughout uh, the other parts of the state. Not a bad model conceptually, but one of the oversights of it is that uh, they made no account for travel between the regional transit authorities, which is why this route to Worcester was such a big deal. Right now, 
PVTA, I mean, in Eastern Mass, the various regional transit authorities at least can get close to Boston or connect to an MBTA service. But beyond Worcester, that starts to become impossible. And broadly speaking, the RTAs obviously get a lot less money than the MBTA. They have much cheaper services to run in the first place. But one of the consequences of this is that very few, it might only be PVTA, which is the one that I work at, very few RTAs actually offer weekend service. Most of them only offer service on weekdays. I think until recently, that was the case even in Worcester, which would be the next largest after us. But you will want to look into that. I'm not sure they might have started running weekend service recently. It's kind of wild, though. You said this is sort of a microcosm for the rest of the U.S. Talk to me about how you would rate the U.S. public transit system kind of compared to other countries, specifically in regards to rapid transit. And, uh, and when you decide on a rating, I'm curious why the U.S. merits that rating. Mm, I think among countries which are capable of developing rapid transit, just because, you know, that is, that is an admittedly pretty high bar. And so a lot of countries are still working on that or don't really need to. I would say the U.S. performs pretty badly. Um, I don't know about an out of 10 score. And it's not that it's without any bright spots, but just there are so many little things and big things that are broken about transit in America. As far as the analogy goes for you know Massachusetts, one of the issues is that transit is very much a localized affair. And so where it exists at all, you might have reasonable transit, but anywhere else as kind of a national system, it's sorely lacking. So connections between city areas are probably the worst component in the USA. And then within cities, there are various other issues just concerning schedule availability. Like I talked about the no weekend service, that's hardly unique to Massachusetts. And that's true all around the USA. Even even some rail systems, I want to say like the Los Angeles commuter rail, I'm not convinced they run on weekends. Or if they do, most commuter rail systems, which do run on weekends, offer greatly reduced service. So they prioritize specifically the times when they think it's most likely people will ride. Which again, that sounds very reasonable, but that's not actually the best way to run a transit network. And we have empirical evidence to suggest otherwise. So we don't need to be led by assumptions there. To, to ask maybe a silly question, um, because there are theories that I can see, for example, uh, for why this is the case. You know, the U.S. developed much later than its peers. Um, the U.S., the, the kinds of... Uh, the decision-making power to create transit, particularly between cities, is kind of difficult to, I guess, manage between because of our federalist system. Why is the U.S., why, why is our transit so lacking? So it's, as you kind of suggested, it's definitely one of those path-dependent problems. You know, the system is lacking here just because we sort of evolved this way through various small decisions. But the Part of the reason we're lacking now is because we were actually very, very far ahead of the curve about 100 years ago. And it's not quite as simple as the success went to our heads and we thought nobody could do it better than us. And so if we can't do it well, we don't even need to bother. It's not quite that simple, but that's definitely part of it. The USA had a first rate, best in the world transportation system well into the 20th century. But even before that, let's say even before the early 20th century, there were some fundamental problems in how we developed our system. And those problems led to complications when the original developers of railways and local transit networks in America started to run into cost issues, not entirely just because of a lack of business, but also because they were hamstrung in their ability to set their own fares. A lot of municipal ordinances would require transit riders to operate a flat fare across an entire region, which is not best practice. You really want to charge by distance traveled. 
And also that flat fare was limited at the time. I think it was like a nickel or a dime, you know, just because we're talking about the 1920s to 50s here. The inability to raise fares to deal with drops in revenue kind of ensured that the old railway operators couldn't survive and a handover would be necessary. So then we get to kind of step two, which is the mid 20th century handover, when a lot of the trolley companies were replaced by bus companies and the intercity private railways got out of the passenger business entirely with the formation of Amtrak. And so at that point, we have another host of structural decisions coming into play that kind of limited our ability to rebuild a system or to modernize it properly. And that kind of led us to where we are today. There have been various attempts, you know, no no shortage of money spent, although at the same time, kind of not enough. It's it's complicated, you know. I guess you could say they spent the money on not the best things for keeping the system going. And yeah, even to this day, a lot of baked-in costs like that, just from the way we've done things so far. I've always said inertia is the hardest thing to overcome. And it's not that there's anything technically you know, infeasible about modernizing transit here. It's just we haven't done things differently in so long. Even convincing people of the need to do things differently can be very difficult. It's funny. If we were recutting a trailer for the podcast today, most of what you just said would be kind of a, a prime target for it. Because I think this is kind of the crux of creating infrastructure from the outside. You know, as I've been talking to people, whether they're building new cities, so talking about kind of what is it about Lagos that would necessitate a new city or, for example, the Salton Sea and its potential to be kind of a lithium mine. It's interesting. There isn't kind of one culprit for why things aren't better than they are or why some things worked. It really does appear to be kind of path dependence and inertia all the way down. And you add into that infrastructure typically doesn't have, it needs like a policy entrepreneur, but it's very difficult to kind of just make large scale changes, even when we know what it is we need to do. And I guess, speaking of cost, you kind of mentioned this in your last answer. I'm curious if you could elaborate in your experience, why are transit costs in the U.S.? so much more expensive and why does it take so much longer to develop transit in the u.s than in other similarly situated countries before i get started i want to just break down the two main sides of cost in transit one being the operating expense just to pay the drivers maintain the vehicles keep the service on the road um, and then the other being capital expense which would be to replace the vehicles you know get new ones to build any stations garages any kind of train service requires capital expense on its track. Both are more expensive in the USA, but the operating costs are, I would say, a lot more defensible. By and large, they're not you know, perfectly defensible. There's some problems there too. Really, it is the capital costs that are the biggest problem. It's the large infrastructure projects. Those are the ones where the costs are just wildly inflated. And again, as with, as with how transit got to be in its current state in America, there are so many culprits here, it's hard to know where to start. You know, there is, you know, the kind of NIMBY angle where people are loath to have, you know, large construction projects. And so, you know, tremendously excessive measures have to be taken to make sure the project is as not disruptive as possible, which perversely can end up dragging it out and making it disrupt people for longer. So it's trying to keep up with people's demands about any given project, not the least of which is the ability to block any given project or just modify it, you know, endlessly which also adds costs. Part of it has to do with staffing and what I guess I can only call unrealistic agreements with labor, which again, this comes back to the inertia thing. You know, it's obviously critical that we have well-paid and compensated drivers for any of our vehicles. We don't want people crashing on the road. And likewise with our construction crews, we need them to be professional trained, you know, doing the best work possible. So we don't want to sell them short, 
But at the same time, we need to come up with contracts that can actually ensure that there will be future contracts. You know, what are we doing here? This is a problem that Japan, you know, had a crisis with in the late 70s to 1980s, which ultimately led to the privatization of their national railways. There were various causes. It boiled down to a labor dispute, and they were able to work it out and solve that issue back then. So yes, in the USA, right, we have just regulations, people's ability to interfere with the project can ramp up the cost tremendously. We have relatively expensive labor, not even the expensive labor is the issue, but the overstaffing, where you just have way more people on a crew than you particularly need to do it. This also shows up in transit operations where you might have the practice of having conductors on a train to pick up tickets is definitely not the way they do it in, you know, in Japan, for example, um, where either if a train line is so quiet that you can't just have fare gates at the station, then the driver of the train will check the tickets instead of having another guy wander around to do it. Needless to say, those are only on the quieter rural lines. But aye, aye, aye. so I guess that's only two subjects right now. There are more. I don't even want to get started on the EPA and requirements for environmental uh, impact statements, which, again, depending on how zealously the jurisdiction wants to push the issue, they can take years, if not I don't think any have taken more than a decade, but... Well, speaking of a transit project that took more than a decade, you know, this episode begins um, with the Second Avenue subway in, in Manhattan, which was first proposed, I believe, in a little over 100 years ago. But there, I wonder, are there other transit projects you can think of in the U.S. that have similarly been extremely exorbitantly expensive and also taken forever just to get off the ground? Yes, I think, frankly, you'd have a much harder time finding projects for which that isn't the case. I know that just recently in Boston, there's a lot of celebration as a extension of the Green Line into Somerville, Mass, uh, opened. This goes to Union Square in Somerville, which is very close to where I lived in the mid-90s, living um, just on the border of Somerville and Cambridge. So it's very heartening to think that finally my old neighborhood has its own stop. But I remember, uh, I don't remember the exact year, but I do remember when this project was you know, being discussed back in at least 2004, if not earlier. I think versions of it have been on the drawing board since at least the 1940s. This particular round was finally authorized and began construction sometime around also 2004, I want to say, and it was originally slated to open in 2011. So here we are now. It's part open. There's still more of it to open, which I think will open later this year, but they, you know, they haven't even finished opening it yet. And I'm as happy as the next guy that it's finally here, but well over budget. You know, I mentioned neighbors getting involved to just jack up the costs. You know, sometimes that does produce nice fruits, even if it does inflate the cost significantly. In this case, it involved connecting to a multi-use bike path, which um, branched off the Green Line extension. There was already a bike path branching off it. They just wanted to run the bike path parallel to this new extension and connect it into the larger city bike network. A nice addition, but again, not strictly related to this project, did not need to get bundled in, inflated the timelines in the planning process, led to constant revisions. And so finally, here we are halfway through 2022 and we're not even done opening it. By Second Avenue subway standards, that's actually very, very impressive. But of course, we're grading on it on, you know, the world's biggest curve. Alex, Mm. I've known you for a few years and you have kind of an unusual story with how you came into transit. Tell me a little bit about your unusual um, childhood and and why you got so interested in transit in the first place. When I was born, my parents were still students and they were still kind of moving around quite a bit. 
and they were both studying Asian languages. And so very early in my life, my family moved to Japan. This is uh, in 1991. And I lived there for two years in a suburb of Tokyo called Machida. And I would describe Machida as, on one hand, very much a suburb, you know, outside the city proper, mostly single-family housing. But also, it has nearly half a million residents right now. And, you know, it's got its fair share of large buildings as well. So it's, it's a suburb, but a Tokyo suburb, to be clear. Anyway, living out there for two years, uh, I was about old enough to go to preschool. I attended a preschool a short walk from my parents' apartment. But every week, once a week, uh, we would head down to the train station, which is maybe a 20 to 30 minute walk, shorter on a bike or a bus, and take the train two stops over uh, to go to church. And so this train, you know, even though it is ostensibly a commuter rail service, you know, it's far out in the suburbs, maybe, I don't know, maybe 15 miles away from Tokyo. I'm not sure. But it runs, you know, like eight car trains using electric overhead power every 10 minutes. Um, and that's at the local stops at the, you know, higher frequency stops. It'll be coming every two to three minutes. So to have this out in the suburbs, you know, this beautiful train, this is the first train that I ever rode, of course. And so if you if you look at uh, Japanese culture, there's certainly a carve out for the, uh, the train nerds. They're generally photographers. They like to take photos of trains and they know everything about them. I can see why kids growing up there would do that because the same effects hit me. The only difficulty was I moved out before I was even five years old. So I came back to America and lived in the Boston area at this point. And the great news was there were still trains to ride. I was so happy. You know, I didn't have to abandon, you know, trains forever. The downside was they were American trains. And that did not at all dim my enthusiasm as like a five-year-old, six-year-old kid. I still love riding them. But even as a kid, I could tell the difference in terms of the, the noise of the vehicles on board. You know, they were clearly very old. You know, the stations were pretty grimy, um, you know, at best. And often a lot of things weren't working, you know, just in general, the whole thing seemed to be shambolic compared to how incredibly organized and punctual everything was in Japan and clean. So anyway, just from that point on, I've always been interested in what transit is out there in the USA, in Japan, in the rest of the world, just always taking the chance to ride it whenever I can. But by the time I was in, you know, middle school, I had kind of already cemented a personal goal for myself to make transit in America, or at least in Massachusetts, as good as transit in Japan. I um, It's so crazy because the way you talk about Japan, I literally thought you had grown up there for like many, many years. It's amazing that all it took was two years and, and like two of the most formative years in your childhood for you to kind of right. catch the train bug. Right. Well, and I, I have siblings as well, and, you know, they didn't quite catch the bug either. So it certainly depends on the person. But, um, yeah, it was, I guess you said it best, it was a very formative time in my life. And so those was at the stage when I was just beginning to form memories. So basically my earliest memories are of living in Japan. But I was also not so young that the whole thing was a blur. I had pretty concrete memories, for instance, of our trip on the last day when we were heading to Narita Airport. I remember the train we were on because it had a nice LED animated map showing the route we were going. Um, and so I was just, you know, mesmerized. I could check off every station as we stopped on it and see the train advance. You mentioned that you could clearly see, even at that age, the differences between U.S. trains and Japanese trains. In your opinion, what are some of the main maybe social and cultural differences that affect kind of how the U.S. and Japan treat public transit? I think Japan has a reputation for very good manners, and that's incredibly well-deserved. Um, in general, Japanese people are just very polite and they're very social in public, 
Um, you know, they're they're not going to make a mess uh, in general or make a lot of noise or have a loud conversation, which is just kind of broadly refreshing, but hard to really imitate here. As far as kind of attitudes, you know, social and cultural attitudes, there's also sort of the impression that, and I mean, it helps that it helps to be on the cutting edge of the technology to do this, but there's something much more glamorous and just every day about the train in Japan. It's not considered, you know, the purview of only the marginalized in societies is what everyone uses and everyone expects the best of it. Part of the reason that any reformers had any leverage here was that the public expected and demanded better service of their rail uh, of their railways than they were delivering at that time. And so, yeah, I think hmm, I'm hard pressed to come up with any more. You ever heard the saying, um, you know, why, why take a shower? I'll just get dirty again. Yes. Uh, when in fact, the point of taking a shower is precisely because you will get dirty again. So you want to, you know, be clean until that happens. You know, um, I feel like that is kind of the attitude just as far as general maintenance goes. You know, when I'm in when I'm in Japan, I was visiting some years ago. I went to my old train station and they just had a guy who's a part timer, apparently. Um, but this is a very common thing there. They just had a guy walking up and down the staircases at the train station, just wiping down the banisters and walls. You know, in the middle of the afternoon, it was like 2 p.m. You know, he looked like he might have even been a retiree, which is why I gathered he was a part-time worker, because uh, senior citizens will often end up taking just odd jobs like that. But the fact that they actually have a position for this, you know, you're the guy who just wipes the station down, you know, every few minutes or so during the afternoon. They probably have another guy for the evening. Um, but that kind of constant maintenance, much more so than people's, you know, cultural inclination not to litter is what makes the difference there. Um, I feel like despite the well-deserved reputation for manners in Japan, people also tend to forget that they're just human. You know, people absolutely do litter there and, you know, they'll leave things behind just out of forgetfulness, of course. But when you have, I, I remember one time in my most recent visit in 2018, I rode a train out to one of the suburban terminals, got off, the train went out of service, and the driver immediately got out of his cab and began walking down the entire length of the train, something like 11 cars, and just picking up every little bit of you know, trash that he found. That wasn't the final cleaning. Obviously, they're going to have a crew deal with it. But, you know, on his way out, he's just going to pick up everything and then let the next crew take over. And so that kind of attention to detail and just insistence on you know, regular cleaning and maintenance goes a really long way. And I think that kind of focus also helps with other things like maintaining punctuality. Um, you know, just if you care about the details, the details work themselves out. There's something kind of interesting too. I don't know the extent to which, you know, Japanese people just care more about their services, but it does seem like they expect more of their services uh, than maybe we do. And I mean, even you can see those differences. We don't have to just look at Japan and the US, even in say Dallas, where I grew up and New York, where I live now, you know, in Dallas, it's expected that you really only ride the the light rail if you need it as a connection downtown, let, let's say you work downtown, or just if you can't afford your own private transit. Whereas in New York, I don't wouldn't say it's like a perfect, it's, it's like Japan and that it's like totally ubiquitous, but it's pretty ubiquitous, right? It's not unusual to see people of very different kind of like socioeconomic statuses riding the train together. And so even in the US, you can kind of see, mm. and people in New York, of course, are accustomed to and sort of demand much more. New York, you get this great mixing of social strata on the train, right? Unlike you found in Dallas. And what's the critical difference here, right? Is it that, you know, New Yorkers are cleaner and more polite than people from Texas? I don't believe that's the case. I think what's going on here is just that New Yorkers have a much more useful service around. 
And as you said, it's not necessarily as useful and ubiquitous as in Tokyo, although certainly it comes closer than anywhere else in America. And it's also certainly not as you know, well-maintained as what you have in Tokyo. There are lots of problems with the New York subway, but just the fact of its availability, you know, as terrible as these trains are, you know, as dirty or as overheated or whatever the problem is, that's still useful enough to be pulling people from all realms of society together to take advantage of it. And it becomes just an everyday part of life. And I feel like this is probably the single largest thing that I wish I could convince more American transit operators to take seriously. The idea that you're not offering a service for any subset of the population. You're trying to offer a general purpose service, which is therefore useful to every subset. You know, whenever a new bus route wants to get proposed, you'll usually have someone, some interested party who says, ah, we need bus service here. You know, there's a lot of jobs here. There's a lot of houses here, you know. And generally in this assumption is not just that there's a lot of jobs or houses, but there's a lot of low income houses here. We need a bus here. You know, oh, there's a uh, benefit center here. We need a bus to go there. And so if you have a bus line that only goes between those two places, right, between the low income apartments and the social security offices, that doesn't particularly do a good job of addressing the needs of people in those apartments or those offices, let alone anybody else. The people in those apartments also need to go to the doctor. They also need to go to the grocery store. They also would like to visit friends. You know, these are all trip purposes that are being completely ignored in the calculus of where to put the bus. And you can solve all these issues if you just stop thinking of, you know, ah, we only need to worry about these particular people who are going to rise. No, you have to think about anywhere there's a person, there's at least a potential rider. That's, I love that tagline. If there's a person, there's a potential rider. I want to talk about Japan a little bit more. Can you explain sort of briefly, although I don't know this is a brief kind of question, how Japan rail companies, Japanese rail companies operate as private companies? You've mentioned this earlier, um, but specifically around like real estate speculation and development. Yeah, it's actually not that different, at least superficially, from how a lot of the railways in the USA were built up. Although there are, I think, a couple of critical differences that I hope I can get to. But the premise of the land use speculation really was something that happened around the time that the cities were still growing um, and the railway industry was still pretty new in Japan. But you had uh, suburban streetcar operators in, say, early 1900s, Tokyo and Osaka, some of which became quite successful and began running what in America we would call interurban lines, which are you know not mainline freight, but they basically have the same standards in terms of their heavy rail uh, operations generally running on electricity, even for the USA back then um, in the 1900s. But in America, the interurbans, you know, all ultimately got shut down, more or less. Um, a few survive as modern transit lines. But in Japan, you know, a lot of them were founded as private companies. Most of them were able to stay as private companies and gradually phased away from streetcar operations to focus on their interurban lines, which over the years were extended, branches were added, through service onto the subways was added, and so these interurban lines evolved into modern suburban rail. These are for companies that remained private the entire time. Japan also had a national railway industry, which originated as an amalgam of government-funded lines and privately built lines, was run by the imperial Japanese government through the war and then by the reconstructed government after the war, and which was ultimately privatized in 1987 and broken up into several subsidiary companies. So the premise is you build a line out of the city, you develop the land around that line, and therefore you plant passengers for yourself who will then use your line to go back and forth to the city. This is indeed how a lot of rail in America got built too, at least at the commuter level, not necessarily at the intercity level. But 
one of the most critical differences that a lot of people who are interested in this method, which they call value capture nowadays, assuming the future added value that a rail line will bring to an area and then developing based on speculation on that value around the station to guarantee your ridership in the future. When a lot of people hear this idea, they think that that is the only way that Japanese companies are making money. A lot of them are diversified. You know, a lot of these interurban operators also run department stores, which they plant at their main stations. They also run smaller convenience stores. They are property developers and they sell apartment buildings and things like that. But they make most of their money from transportation sales. Cannot emphasize this enough. If you look at a suburban operator in Japan, yes, they are invested in land use. Yes, they do take steps to make sure that their own ridership will be there. But that's not the part which makes them the money. That's just like, you know, the background work. The part that makes them the money is everybody riding those trains or buses. And this was usually not the case in the USA, where the main goal was just to make a killing off the speculation. And then you didn't really care what happened next. You'd have a successor. They take over the company. And that was very good at getting things built and really bad at getting things to stick around. That at least was part of why... You know, you had these interurban operators and streetcar operators in America running into trouble. I don't mean to say it's entirely their fault either. We cannot underestimate the impact of having tons of cars on the road, since a lot of American transit operators didn't have dedicated rights of way. And so they'd be slowed down by anything that got in their path. But that's also to say, I don't want people to think it was entirely the evil car companies that did this. There were some really serious structural problems with American railway operators, which really doomed their efforts in the passenger rail business. Might have been overcome, but would have would not have come from the railways themselves, I don't think. You would have needed a government intervention, which was a very, very tough sell and remains that to this day. So That's kind of the natural next question for me. How does the Japanese model, right? So you say you might have like a, a, a an operator in kind of like a regional line or a smaller line. Yes, they might invest in land and they might be speculating, but it's really not where they make their money. How does that model compare to how transit agencies across the U.S. are expected to function? Do Are there any U.S. agencies that work like that? I don't know if you could say there are any agencies that work like that, but there are, um, at least recently, some prominent private railway companies that have started operation. There's Brightline in Florida which is a private intercity railway line, which is, as far as I know, doing its best to develop the areas around its stations. You may be familiar with the term transit-oriented development. Anyway, Brightline has taken advantage of value capture and TOD to build up its station areas. This is why they're so interested in Miami and making sure their station location is close to downtown, unlike the Amtrak station, which is more peripheral. Yeah, I know that Brightline is is attempting to add a high-speed line to Vegas from near L.A., I'm not sure where that project stands. I just know that many operators have tried to do that route, and the latest ones to step up to the plate are Brightline, so I wish them the best. The other one is uh, actually a Japanese venture in America where one of the companies that resulted from the breakup of the Japanese National Railways is currently invested in developing a high-speed railway line in Texas between Dallas and Houston. In America, this is called the Texas Central Railway. It's a subsidiary or like partner company for the Central Japan Railway, which operates the busiest high-speed line in Japan, the one from Tokyo to Osaka. Um, And generally, its operations are rural operations in Central Japan and commuter metropolitan operations around Nagoya, um, Japan's third city. That's one I've been hearing about for years. I didn't realize it was a Japanese company behind that, which gives me a lot of hope for it. That has definitely uh, improved my impression of the project as well. At the very least, I understand that the people who are working on it are 
technically very knowledgeable with literal decades of experience running the busiest high-speed railway in the world, whether or not that will be able to translate to Texas is still kind of anyone's guess, but I, I don't think you could find a better crew to do the job, ultimately. Tell me, what do you think are the lessons and learnings for the U.S. as you kind of think back to your own experiences in Japan and then now as a transit planner yourself? What do you think that U.S. cities should aim to learn from from the way that many Japanese cities operate transit? As far as learning from Japan, I'd already mentioned about planning for a general population. That's pretty critical. But just as far as operations go, I think... I would encourage them to not give up on the concept of fare box recovery. Even the most ardent transit advocates in America will frequently drop the line that there's no transportation service that pays for itself. This is where the reference to the Japanese providers not only making their money from value capture is very important, because usually the people who say that no system is profitable will bring up the value capture argument to hand wave Japan's example away. But... That's literally not true. You can A lot of these are publicly traded companies. You can look up their books and see where they're getting their money from. I, I make a point to check the Oraku Factbook whenever they update it, which is once a year. That's the line that I used to ride you know, when I was a kid in the suburbs there. So yeah, we can confirm that it is indeed possible to make more than 100% of your operating costs from your fares. And the question is just, how do you do this? And there are so many ways to approach this that just don't even get entertained because in America, they don't think it's an idea worth pursuing. They don't think there's any finish line to that race. They think if you start focusing on your fare box recovery, you'll never hit 100%. You'll waste a lot of time. You'll have to make you know, austere cuts on anything that isn't profitable immediately. That's really not how this works. Really, if you're only making 10% of your budget from fares, think about what you can do to get that to 20%. That's not much. You don't need to raise your fares necessarily, right? You might just need to change your fare structure. You might you know, offer a discount on passes, which gets people to buy passes more often, which gets them to use the system more often. And then, hey, they don't always have a pass. Or you know, they might not ride the pass as much as the pass is paying for. And so you're still making more money than if they never rode at all, right? Yeah, put it like this. If you buy a monthly pass for $50, and $50 pays for, let's say, 30 trips on the bus, and you only use that monthly pass 20 times, transit operator has made a lot more money off those 20 trips than if they were all sold individually. And so, you know, little steps that can be taken to improve fare box recovery. It's not just about raising revenue. It's also about reducing your costs. Obviously, you know, you don't need to change your fares at all if you can come up with a way to bring your operating costs down by, say, 5%, right? I, again, it's just that they don't even entertain the idea that you could ever hit 100% profitability, that they won't take the smallest step in that direction. On the contrary, a lot of providers are talking now about trying to go fare-free, which I admire where that's coming from, but I can't say that that would work out very well for us, even in the medium term, let alone the long term. It's interesting because in the same way that a lot of the challenges that you see in infrastructure are not things that have a single cause. Similarly, if you wanted to kind of fix sort of broken systems or even systems that are just operating suboptimally in some regard, these little changes, right? Like I wouldn't necessarily think, oh, if you're if you're making like 10% of your operating costs, maybe try and take make 20 in revenue. Like that that seems like very doable. And I guess yeah. as you look across the United States, do you see pockets of optimism? Yes. Um, not the least of which is my own local situation. It was Nice to get a couple of routes approved. Um, you know, one of them is doing badly, one of them is doing well, but both of those were what I expected when I went into this. So I guess just 
things are going as expected there. Tell me again, um, just what hmm. did you get approved? And congratulations, by the way. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It was, and I should emphasize, I did not work on these uh, grant proposals alone at all. Um, so I had the collaboration of uh, my great coworker over at PBTA, the uh, director of planning over there. But one of the routes was a thrice per day, five days a week, um, weekend focused service connecting Amherst Mass and Worcester Mass. The other is a roughly hourly to half hourly service along Interstate 91 between Northampton, um, Holyoke at the Holyoke Mall and downtown Springfield. You know, like I said a minute ago, the Springfield one has been a success. The Worcester one, not so much, but both are extremely well received. And, you know, the shortcomings of the Worcester route, I was well aware of when I went into designing the schedule with the very limited funds that were on the table. We can, at the end of the day, only provide as much service as people pay for, which is one of the reasons I think it's so important that transit providers try to maximize their fare box revenue, because the more your riders are paying for you to exist, the more you will be responding to the needs of your riders in continuing to exist. When you get all of your budget from state uh, allocations, taxpayer funding, that money is just as good as any other money. The problem is that you have to address the concerns of the people giving it to you in order to get it. Um, and their concerns may or may not line up with the actual interests of riders. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. The more of your money is coming from riders, the less likely you are to get paid to do something you wish you wouldn't do, which uh, happens all the time, I gotta say. It's a bit but, of a principal agent problem, you know, if the money isn't coming right, from people right. that are actually using the service, it may or may not be useful. Right. Essentially, it's just you'll always reflect the priorities of whoever's paying you to do your job. You want those priorities to line up with the users of your service, ideally. But uh, yeah, as far as pockets of optimism, there are a lot. I think the thing which has had my attention the most in the past few years um, has been this phenomenon of bus network rationalizations. There's a uh, well-regarded transit planner called Jarrett Walker, who runs a private consulting firm, which I would say specializes in these uh, network redesigns. Some of the fruits have been great. One of the first cities they went at was uh, Houston. Um, I know they've also done work in at least Miami, I want to say Seattle, um, and I want to say Rhode Island as well at one point, or they might be doing Rhode Island now. I don't quite recall. But these redesigns, essentially, they aim to have a cost-neutral redeployment of existing resources. So you have X number of buses, you can pay X number of driver hours and X amount of fuel. Could you, just by changing where the buses are running, get a more effective system? you know, focusing on allowing people to transfer outside the central hub as well as the central hub. Um, you know, having services more frequent on more routes, even if that means having slightly fewer routes. You know, the routes that you have will be higher quality. They will more consistently attract people to them because they're more useful. And so this tendency doesn't seem to be losing any steam. Um, more and more cities are picking it up. The results have been very good where they've been attempted. This was pre-COVID, so I don't know what happened after that, unfortunately. But Pre-COVID, uh, I do remember that any articles that would decry the general crisis of transit ridership in America would have to overlook Houston, which, despite being a generally bus network, was actually improving its ridership at that time, while most of the country was struggling and losing ridership year after year. And it hadn't been doing so before the redesign, so something clicked there. And I want more cities to get this opportunity. I've taken a crack at it in my spare time looking at our local network, but I don't know. It's. I feel like I'm maybe a little too in the weeds to do a good job. I'm already too accustomed to the usual special demands, special concessions, 
that I, that I can't quite bring myself to say, ah, oh, well, rationally speaking, we shouldn't do that. You know, I know these guys too well. They'll come yelling at me, you know, the next week if I mess it up. So it can be nice to have some outside eyes looking at it. At the same time, I think another thing that a lot of trans agencies in the U.S. should be prioritizing more, and some of them are and doing a very good job at it, um, is developing in-house capability. The less you need to contract your, you know, your plans, your operations, et cetera, out to external vendors, the better you are just at the industry in general. Um, you know, some of these Japanese suburban railway companies, one of them in particular, happens to also be one of the largest manufacturers of rail cars in Japan. So they make trains for themselves, but also for other companies in Japan and also around the world. The more, again, just the more things that we can be good at, the more effectively we can spend our money. It, it always sucks to see a huge chunk of your budget that isn't even entering the transit system. It's just being paid to you to give to a consultant to do work that you should really know how to do yourself. Alex, this has been honestly a delight. It's crazy. I, I've known you for years, but I feel like I'm just meeting you again for the first time. It's... um. It's really wonderful to know that there are people working not just in kind of the big transit systems like in New York or in in Wamada in DC, but also in places like Springfield. And I appreciate so much that you gave us your time. No, thank you again so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. It's great to catch up. Um, we should definitely talk again soon. Beneath the Surface is a production of Stripe Press. The senior producers for the series are myself and Everett Katigbak. This episode was produced by Dave Yim and Jack Rossiter-Munley. Whitney Chen was our production manager. Our associate producer and editor was Astrid Landon. Our sound mixer and sound designer was Jim McKee. Original music for this episode was composed by Auribus. To learn more about Stripe Press, our books, our films, and more, visit press.stripe.com. Okay, that's it for this B-side. I've been your host, Tamara Winter. This is Beneath the Surface. B-sides. <laughs> <laughs>